Is he worthy? He is. Amen. Amen. He is. He is. It's been such a joy in the first hour to be focusing in on his worthiness, this very scene. He is worthy of all worship, our great Savior. And this morning we continue our walk through our Savior's farewell discourse to his disciples. We pick back up in John 15. I invite you to turn there with me. Jesus and his disciples had left the upper room at the end of chapter 14. And now they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're headed to the place where Jesus will be arrested and separated from the disciples. Their remaining time together is taking away. And so Jesus focuses them in on the need for them to abide in Him and to abide in His love, to believe in Him and believe in His great love for them. And the practical outworking of their believing in Him and in His love for them is that they are to bear fruit. As we saw last Sunday, bearing fruit is basically obedience to Jesus, motivated by His love for us, motivated by His example for us, and motivated by the great joy that He gives to us as we follow Him. That brings us to our passage this morning, John 15, verses 12-17, through 17, where Jesus will round out His explanation of the metaphor, the vine and the branches. John 15, verses 12-17. through 17. This is My commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. What a gift it is to us that you would give us heavenly truth in the Bible. And God, we ask that you would help us to understand these words before us. We pray that these words would abide in us and that much fruit would result in our lives from their work in us, that you might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Jesus in this passage is going to round out his explanation of the vine and the branches metaphor, and he's going to do so by indicating that 
He calls those who abide in Him and who abide in His love His friends. We see in this passage four ways that Jesus relates to those that He calls His friends. And if you are abiding in Jesus and are abiding in His love, then you are called His friends. And He relates in these ways to you as His friends. We're going to see that there are both great privileges and responsibilities that come with being Jesus' friends. The first way that we see Jesus relating to His friends is that He laid His life down for His friends. Verses 12-14 This is My commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. As we saw last time, Jesus told the disciples in verse 10 that abiding in his love is fleshed out in obeying his commandments. And now in verse 12, he describes a commandment in the singular. This is my commandment. It is a summary commandment. And as abiding in His love is fleshed out in obedience, He focuses them in on this specific summary commandment as a major priority for their lives, especially after He is gone. Jesus had already issued this commandment back in John 13 in verse 34. He called it a new commandment there. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And one of the key features of that new commandment was its standard. Even as I have loved you. Jesus' own love for His disciples is what sets the bar for the kind of love that they are to show one another as His disciples. And Jesus echoes that very standard again in chapter 15, verse 12. This is My commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now the disciples at this moment are oblivious to the extent to which Jesus is going to go to demonstrate His love for them. In a matter of hours, they will see that His love for them is far deeper than they ever could have imagined. In verse 13, Jesus hints at how He will show the very depth of His love for them. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what Jesus will do for His Disciples, they will see what it was for him to love them to the end. They will see what it is for him to love them to the full. He will soon show them the greatest expression of love that one can demonstrate to one's friends. He will love them at the expense of his own life. He will lay down his life for them. Jesus had already spoken about this 
laying down of his life for them. Back in John 10, John 10 verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now that time of his crucifixion that he was speaking about, at that point, it's almost upon him as he speaks to his disciples now. The good shepherd will very soon lay down his life for the sheep. And we see then that Christ-like love is a sacrificial love. Christ's love teaches us that love is demonstrated in action. Love gives. That means that love is not primarily a feeling. Certainly there are feelings that accompany a true love for someone. But that's not the substance of love. Love gives. Love serves. Love sacrifices. Love puts others before oneself. Love seeks the good of another and is willing to lose so another may gain. And the Lord Jesus Christ expressed this kind of love to the infinite degree. His love was willing to bear the full fury of infinite divine wrath in the place of His friends. Because this is the judgment that their sins deserve. And He would bear that for them in their place. I'm struck by the patience of Jesus that we see on display with His disciples. So we see these disciples bickering over who is the greatest. And we see them at times questioning Jesus in that upper room. What did He do for them? He died for them. He bled for them. And if you are abiding in Jesus and in His love today, He bled and He died for you and for me. Though a sinner, though His enemy, He died to make you His friend. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you have the privilege of being called friend by Jesus. Not because of anything you've done, only because of what He has done for you. Reconciling you to God by laying His life down for you. But how do you know that you are numbered among those Jesus calls His friends? Verse 14, He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's not as though you earn His friendship by your obedience to Him. But rather, obedience is the expected fruit that a life truly abiding in Jesus and abiding in His love will produce. You know you are His because the fruit of obedience is in your life. Obedience to Jesus is the evidence that the Spirit has made you new. He is bearing fruit in your life. As we talked about last time, true obedience is from the heart. You believe in His love for you. And that fosters in your heart a love for Him in response. And because you love this one who has so loved you, 
You want to do what honors and pleases Him. He lovingly laid His precious life down for you to save you from your disobedience to God, your sin. And so out of gratitude, you want your blood-bought life to be used however He wants it to be used. You are His friends if you do what He commands you. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 15 says it so powerfully, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It is only appropriate that we would live not for ourselves, but live for the one who died to make us his friends. Is that how you are living your life today? Are you living by the attitude that you've been purchased out of slavery to sin to a benevolent master who has loved your soul to the full? Or have you lost the zeal to live for him and to serve him to the max? Perhaps you've fallen into a pattern of prioritizing things that please you and serving Jesus takes a back seat and and becomes secondary. I would urge you, if you've lost that drive to serve the one who laid his life down for you so you could be called his friend, that you take up the simple discipline of thanking Jesus for laying his life down for you at the beginning of every day. Reflect on the gospel daily. Remember what you've been saved from. Remember what it cost to save you from it. And ask the Lord to inflame your heart with his good news. Do this every day. Let it set the tone for your day. What Christ has done for you. So that you could be called friend. It is a great privilege to be called his friend. And to live your life for him who laid his life down for you. So the first way we see the Lord relating to his friends was that Jesus laid his life down for his friends. The second way that the Lord related to his friends that we see in this passage, it's in verse 15, is that Jesus revealed divine truth to his friends. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. No longer do I call you slaves. The the picture of master and slave alone is not adequate to illustrate the full nature of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is not dismissing the master-slave obedience element of this relationship. He's just made that crystal clear in verse 14 that the nature of their friendship does not do away with their need to obey what he commands. Their obedience to him is in fact the very evidence of their friendship with him. And their obedience is the appropriate response to their side of that friendship. So this is not a a buddy-buddy type of friendship. Jesus is not merely their peer how many of your friends have said to you, you're my friend if, I, if you do what I command you? How many of your friends have you said that to? 
You are my friend if you do whatever I command you. I imagine that would not go over so well. <laughs> there is something unique about the nature of the, the friendship that Jesus has with his disciples. I believe Warren Wiersbe relates this really well. It's to, in the picture of being the friend of a king. Wiersbe says the friends of the king would be close to him and know his secrets, but they would also be subject to him and have to obey his commands. There is thus no conflict between being a friend and being a servant. So Jesus is not removing the, the master-slave element in that relationship. Rather, he's enhancing the relationship by adding to it the element of friendship. Look back at verse 15 to see what Jesus says he has added beyond the, the typical master-slave relationship. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Masters typically assigned tasks that the slaves were responsible to execute, and slaves were not necessarily invited to be in the know concerning the broader scope of the master's plans. It was more of a business relationship. The master didn't bear his heart to them necessarily. He simply communicated enough to them to execute their tasks. They didn't necessarily know how their work was fitting into the bigger picture of accomplishing all that the master had planned and purposed. But Jesus revealed divine truth to his disciples. Jesus held nothing back from them that the Father had intended for them to know. Matthew 13, Jesus talks about with his disciples that they were blessed because they had been given the ability to understand the mysteries of the kingdom that had not been given to everyone, but had been given to his disciples, those who believe in him. Now, this concept of God revealing his plans to his friends, it's not a completely new concept here. And consider Abraham, according to James 2.23, Abraham was called the friend of God. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Abraham is called the friend of God forever. And in Isaiah 41, verse 8, the Lord directly calls him, Abraham, my friend. And as for God communicating his plans to his friends, the Lord disclosed to Abraham his plans to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham was his slave, but he was also his friend. And thus, the Lord shared his plans with Abraham. Consider also Moses. Exodus 33, verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. God spoke to Moses just as a man speaks to his friend. He revealed himself to Moses, I am who I am. And he disclosed his plans for his people Israel to Moses. And so it is also with Jesus' true disciples. Jesus wants them to know what the Master is doing. He invites them in 
to understand these things. He wants them to know all that the Father had given him to speak to them. The mysteries of the kingdom. The the fact that there's a dwelling place in the Father's house for them. The fellowship of the Trinity that is coming to them when the Spirit is sent. The resources of heaven that will be available to them to bear much fruit and to accomplish the mission that Jesus would send them out on as his witnesses. All the various truths that Jesus had spoken to them that we recall the Spirit of Truth was going to later bring to remembrance to them these precious truths Jesus made known to his disciples. You understand how this works in friendship. You tend to convey information that is closer to your heart with those that are closest to you. It's a way of of even expressing your very love for them, that you invite them in close. You share with them so that they know you. They know your thoughts. They know your plans. And they can participate in those plans with you. Jesus has revealed divine truth to those who are his friends. It should humble us to hold a Bible in our our hands. To hold the revelation of divine truth written in its pages. A lot of blood was spilt for the cause of getting the Scripture into even the English language so we can read it. William Tyndale is just one example of someone who was martyred for this very effort. God didn't owe us the Bible. He didn't owe us the revelation of His divine truth. He didn't owe us access to the message of His gospel and His word by which He saves us by which he continues to sanctify us. What a privilege it is that we've been invited to know the Lord, to know his plans as he has communicated them in his word. You must think about Bible reading and Bible study in this light. You must think of it as an invitation to come and to feast on the words that God has for his friends. For you, to know his nature, to know his character, to know his delights, to know his plans. The Bible is sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness. It tells you how to be reconciled to God, and it tells you how to live in ways that are pleasing to God when you've been reconciled to him. Are you availing yourself of this opportunity to grow in knowing divine truth? Are you following the Psalm 1 pattern of meditating in His Word day and night? I encourage you to December 31st, if you didn't already have a daily Bible reading plan, it's a good time to implement one, to keep yourself in the Word regularly. And I would tell you, even today, it's not too late to start if you're not on a plan to be in His Word, to treat the Word like the treasure that it is, divine truth He shares with His friends. He gives us His divine truth in His Word for the renewal of our minds, to show Himself and His plans to us. We must not neglect such a precious gift.
Jesus laid his life down for his friends. He revealed divine truth to his friends, invited, invited them in to understand what the Master is doing. And the third way that Jesus relates to his friends is that Jesus appointed his friends to bear lasting fruit. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. If you are a friend of Jesus, you need to know that it's not because you chose to befriend him. He told the disciples plainly, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I don't know that you could say that any more plainly than he did. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus had already said something similar to the disciples previously in John 6 at the end of that chapter. He said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus had chosen that group to follow him, but he always knew that Judas was a false disciple among them and, and pointed it out even at that time, early on. But the rest of them were believing in him. They were true disciples. Jesus had sought them out, not the other way around. Typically, disciples would, would choose the master, choose the one that they want to follow, to learn from. But this scenario was quite different from that, and Jesus wanted it to be evident to the disciples, to make it clear. He said it more than once. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. We know from Ephesians 1 verse 4 that all true disciples of Jesus who are abiding in him and in his love and living in obedience to him, they've all been chosen in him before the foundation of the world that they would be holy and blameless before him. We didn't pick him out as friend. He picked us out as friend. It's fascinating to see also that the same kind of thing is said about Abraham and, and Moses as well, the friends of God. That They were chosen by God. Nehemiah 9 verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees. And gave him the name Abraham. And Psalm 106, verse 23, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Abraham, Moses, his slaves, chosen to be his friends before the foundation of the world. The Lord chose to redeem a people from sin, and to become not only his slaves, but to be his friends. And those that he chooses to redeem from sin, he also appoints to be fruitful for his purposes. Not only does he spare us from judgment, but he calls us in to bear fruit, to participate in his plans. Look back at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit. This is a statement of purpose. Why did Jesus choose to redeem people out of sin? It was so that he might appoint them to go and bear fruit. And this echoes 
John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And we learned again that bearing fruit is walking in obedience to Jesus. The disciples were to bear fruit by walking in obedience to all that Jesus had commanded them. And later on in the Great Commission, Jesus will basically challenge them to go out into the world with the gospel to make more disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that Christ had commanded. And Jesus then gives an amazing assurance concerning his choosing and appointing of them in his service and the bearing of fruit that will come about through them. He has appointed them to bear fruit. And specifically that that fruit would remain. That they would have lasting fruit. Verse 16. And that your fruit would remain. That your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Abiding in the vine, the true vine, being pruned by the vine dresser, and having fruit of the Spirit manifesting in their lives, prayerfully depending on the Father's provision in the name of the Son, that would be the basis of them having lasting fruit, fruit that remains. And as far as fruitfulness pertaining to the Great Commission is concerned, Jesus had already promised to them that he would build his church and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against them. That's fruit that lasts. That's fruit that remains. There will be lasting fruit that results from Christ building his church through his chosen and appointed slaves whom he calls friends. What a great encouragement this is for us as a church that he's chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit that remains. And he will build his church here at PBC in precisely the way that he wants. He simply calls us to abide in him, to abide in his love, so that we may bear much fruit for the glory of God. We need his words abiding in us. We need to depend upon him in prayer. Calvin said of the relation of prayer to our bearing fruit that remains. This promise of Christ, therefore, arouses us to call upon God. For whoever acknowledges that the success of his work depends on God alone will offer his labor to him with fear and trembling. We need to pray over our labors as a church with fear and trembling, conveying our utter need of God to bless the work for his glory to bless the work that we have fruit that remains, lasting fruit for the glory of His name. And fruit that remains involves the hard work of discipleship, the hard work of meaningful relationships that go beyond the surface, relationships in which we're focused on spurring one another on in the pursuit of holiness. And in the words of Hebrews 10.24, we need in our relationships to be considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This leads us right into our 
fourth way that Jesus relates to his friends. Jesus commanded his friends to love one another. Verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Jesus, Jesus mentioned this commandment in verse 12, and now he actually commands them to obey it. He says, I command you. What you need to understand is that Christ's church serves as a lasting testimony of God's love in the world. When Jesus came in the flesh, he brought a love from out of this world into this world. And his revelation of God's love culminated in his death on the cross, whereby he accomplished the redemption of sinners whom he had chosen to make his friends. And those who Jesus makes to be his friends become members of his church. And so Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us, because we are to be a living monument of his love in the world. As he said in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We have the great privilege of reflecting the love of Christ that's been shown to us by loving one another as he has loved us. People will know we are his disciples by that mark. In 1 John 3, verse 16, if you'll just turn with me there for a moment. You may be familiar with John 3, 16 from the Gospel of John. But there's also a 1 John 3, 16. Some of you may have even memorized John 3.16. And I'll tell you that 1 John 3.16 is another one of those verses that so richly and succinctly summarizes glorious truth about God's love. It says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That pretty well sums up for us where our passage this morning has been driving. Our passage began with the command to love one another and ended with the command to love one another. And in between, we beheld the great love that our Savior has shown us. Only those who abide in His love can love as He loved. He laid down His life for us. And so as a monument of that love in this world, we must lay our lives down for one another and so prove to be his disciples. It's a joy to know that so much goes on here behind the scenes in terms of you loving one another, people praying for one another, many relationships focused on spiritual growth and accountability, people volunteering to serve and ministries in all sorts of ways, people swiftly moving to help each other in times of need. Praise the Lord for His testimony of love in our midst. And let me challenge you, if you are disengaged from any of these, I would encourage you to get engaged in them. It is a great privilege to serve the Lord 
by serving your fellow believers for whom he died. And it is also a responsibility. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. We are to lay down our lives for one another because that's what he did for us. It's a testimony to his love. And people know we're his disciples by it. Are there people in the church family you struggle to love? We've noted before that love one another is a summary command that that encapsulates all the other one another commands in the New Testament. Make it a point to lay down your life in love by intentionally practicing some of those one another commands toward those who you may struggle more to love. Because this display of love is an opportunity for you to especially magnify the love that Christ has shown you as an unlovely sinner, one that was not easy to love. Maybe there's no tensions with anyone in particular, but, but you're not taking time to really get to know some people well enough to know how you can be of service to them, to really build them up in the truth, to really love them. In service to Christ who laid his life down for you, lay down your life and take the initiative to reach out to get to know your fellow believers for whom Christ died. They are Christ's friends and they should be your friends. If I could encourage us to have a focus as a church, what what do we want our reputation to be? We should want to be a church that's known by our love for one another that people would know we are his disciples by how we love each other. We should be a church that aims, that, that, that aims to delight in serving one another in love. And this is true Christ-like love, focused on helping each other to grow in obeying all that Christ has commanded. We should be a church that wants to spend time with one another, to live life together, to serve one another, to care for each other again, is a living monument to Christ's love. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received this glorious Savior who lays his life down for his friends. You've never truly trusted in him as Lord and Savior. I have good news for you. Though every one of us here, including you, including me, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth as a man, took a human nature to himself. He lived a sinless life, obeying his Father's will all the way to the point of serving as a substitute in death for his friends to save them from their sins. And if you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone to have paid your sin penalty in full, you can be counted his friend. We deserve the infinite wrath of God for sinning against an infinitely holy God, but Jesus paid it all for those who trust in Him alone to save. Jesus laid His life down for His friends. He revealed divine truth to His friends. He appointed His friends to bear lasting fruit, and He commanded His friends to love one another. What a Savior we have. And what a privilege and responsibility we have to represent 
his love and our love for one another. I'll leave you with these words of a blessed hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Praise Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice at the great privilege that you give to those who abide in Jesus, who abide in his love, that we are called friends. We thank you for Jesus laying his life down for us as his friends. We thank you for his revelation of truth to us, that we might know you, that we might understand what you are doing in the world and what a privilege we have to be participating in that, to be used by you in that work, in that plan, that we have been appointed by him to bear fruit, and particularly fruit that lasts. How encouraging that is to us. Christ builds his church. What a privilege it is to be used of him in that work. And Jesus has commanded us to love one another. Help us, Lord. Help us to as we see your love for us, Lord Jesus, help us to love one another with that same love. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.